Uh, as we settle in, uh, you can go ahead, if you have your Bibles with you, and open them to Luke chapter 15. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at the third uh, of our five parables uh, in this series that's entitled Storyteller. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at these parables of Jesus. Uh, and man, if you recall uh, from our time in the series, I gave us kind of when we kicked off a working definition uh, of of parables. And really what parables are is they are stories uh, that, that Jesus told uh, that really they connect or they are taken from everyday life. Jesus uh, isn't <clears throat> setting out and laying out things uh, that uh, no one has experienced. Uh, those he's talking to wouldn't know about. Uh, and so uh, he's laying out these stories that are taken from everyday life. But the goal of these stories is not to just, uh, man, share, uh, man, uh, anecdotes or uh, just wise quotes, things, little nuggets for them to hold on to. Actually, the goal is to draw uh, those listening to Jesus uh, in this context, in these stories, but also us today to draw us into, uh, man, the simplicity of these stories. But also, and, and as you read the stories, we've even talked about it over the last couple of weeks, there are many moments when you read it and you're like, well, that's really simple, but it must be too simple. There, there's this profoundness, there's a deeper depth to everything that Jesus is saying. And, and really the reason for that, the reason that we find with Jesus speaking in parables is so that we might wrestle with the application for life in the kingdom of God. You see, every one of these stories, everything that Jesus said, from Matthew 4, whenever He comes on the scene, He says, hey, look, the kingdom is now. I mean, it's here and now. Like, repent, believe, the kingdom is now. Everything has been about Him establishing and bringing forth this kingdom that's unlike any other kingdom, right? A, a better kingdom. A, a, a holy kingdom. A glorious kingdom. You see, what these stories do is really when we, we press into them, when we step into them, these stories pull us away from ourselves being the center of our lives so that we might dive into the kingdom of God, which presents life as being centered upon the declaration of God's glory, right? Jesus is the very manifestation of God's glory. He is the Word that put on flesh, and so essentially what they do for our lives is they tell you about you by telling you about your deeper need, your deeper desire, your deeper longing. You see, uh, in doing that, the way Jesus does it is He says, hey, you have to get the focus off of you so that you can see the reality of where you're at and what your real need is. The reality that you are really meant to live. You see, the kingdom of God is not about you. And man, if we were to be honest, we struggle with this. Because we, whether we intentionally or unintentionally uh, act upon it, we tend to make everything about us, do we not? Every single situation, every decision, every moment, our first thought is numero uno. What it is it have to do with me, how is it going to affect me? I mean, because of that, our goal in those situations 
is to have the least cost and the most gain, even if it means cost for others, right? We're always calculating, oh, what's the cost of that going to be for me? I want the least cost, but I want the most gain. And man, if I can get that gain with even less cost, but if it costs someone else, that's okay. I'll take it. And that the gospel of the kingdom in these parables presents us with a totally different way to view life and living. You see, what they do is they proclaim a kingdom that is different and yet far greater and more valuable than the little, tiny, small kingdoms that we try to set up for ourselves. This Yesterday, our kids were, uh, they were playing in the house and James had just woken up from a nap. And he was pretty grumpy uh, and they were building with blocks. And man, he would build about three high and then he would turn to grab another block and he would knock it over with his own body, Right? And he would just freak out, like yelling, screaming, throwing a fit. Like, hey, we're not going to do that. Calm down. Build it again. And so he'd try to build his little kingdom again. And then he would knock it down himself, right? You know, cry. So he has to go sit in time out, right? And we have, you know, uh, you know, hey, buddy, like we're not going to throw fits about these things. But that's what we do. Like we have these tiny kingdoms. And what we try to do is we try to build them up and yet we are constantly, they are constantly either falling or we're knocking them down ourselves and then we're upset. Usually we're blaming others for them falling down. The kingdom that we've seen so far in looking at these parables is way more extensive and invasive and far more valuable than we could ever imagine. It's a better kingdom. God's kingdom, which I believe is tangible, although what we, you know, it is uh, invisible. Like we don't see like the, the, uh, well, we do, but we don't, right? Like in Romans, it says, man, you can see the glory of God just by creation. You see his goodness so that none are with, none have an excuse. But this kingdom and the reality of it is that it's ever expanding and at the culmination of all things, it will fill all in all with the glory of God uh, using my favorite metaphor from Scripture as the waters covers the seas, right? Like water upon water. It is saturated with God's glory. But along with this, what we find is that due to its value, We saw last week that it is the one thing that is worth giving up all for. For no cost. And and guess what? Like we we all understand this. Like it costs to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, what? You got to pick up your cross, which is a mechanism of death. It costs to follow Jesus. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you uh, relationships. It will cost you a variety of things. Your comforts. But the gain far outweighs the cost. You see, Jesus gave all so that we might receive the reward. Therefore, we willingly in turn give all. So that we might proclaim the true reward that is found in kingdom living. That leads us today to the beautiful picture that we get of the kingdom. We're going to get this picture of God's grace uh, and our call to be witnesses of the glorious good news of the gospel to the world around us.
I want to just lay this out from the start. Uh, man, uh, in God's kingdom, we, uh, man, for the follower of Jesus, you don't just, uh, you, you aren't just brought into God's kingdom. You are called to participate in God's kingdom. It's not, hey, you're in, said back. No, he says, hey, you're in, now go. Matthew 28. You participate, you co-labor alongside him. You have a part to play. And so let me just read Luke 15. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. It says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so here this week we get another couplet uh, of parables, right? Like the last three weeks they've come in twos. And, and I think like as I've journeyed through the last three weeks, I think the reason is, is because Jesus lays something out and he says, hey, I want you to get this, but maybe you don't hear me. So I'm going to say it in a slightly different, but pretty much the same way, because I really want you to get this right. So we get these two parables that are really similar, but tell two separate stories. Now, if we're going to really uh, get the understanding of what Jesus is doing here, I think we have to go backwards a little bit and really look at kind of what's happened thus far uh, in the story. Because I think this parable, really its lead up is Luke chapter 14. And so uh, let me just take a moment to set the stage. So Jesus, if you go back to chapter 14, Jesus has been invited to eat uh, on the Sabbath at the house of one of the religious leaders of Pharisees. Uh, you know, I was talking to Diane the other day, and there's a book by a guy named Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. And the whole premise of the book is looking at, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal or coming from a meal. Meals are very important in the Gospel of Luke. There's something about sharing a meal, right? Now, we talk about that. Like, that's the reason that our MCs, like, we do meals because there's something about it that allows us to let our guard down and enjoy, man, the simplicity of God's grace and food. And so Jesus has been invited to eat at the house of this Pharisee. And while he's there, a man in need, a man that's in need of healing comes before him. Which is not a big deal, right? Like, if you've read the Gospels, like, what you realize by this point, like, Jesus is known for healing. And so just another person comes to him and is in need of healing. But the problem was, is that that particular day was the Sabbath. And you see, on the Sabbath, for the religious leaders, any work 
Even the work of restoration and healing was a no-no in the eyes of the religious who were actually watching Jesus' every move. So probably the reason that Jesus is there is on the one hand, this religious leader knows like, hey, this guy's really popular, so I want him in my house, right? Because all news is right, good news, right? And like, so even if it causes a stir, it's like, yeah, but he was in my house. But on the other hand, they're watching. They're seeing if he's going to slip up. They're seeing if he's going to make a mistake. And in this moment, they're looking at him and Jesus just says, hey, you know, really, he says, hey, which of you has a donkey that falls in a pit, won't go and pull him out of the pit on the Sabbath? He's like, what he's saying is, hey, look, this guy is more valuable than a donkey, okay? And he heals him. And then as he's sitting there at this feast, at um, this meal, what he does is Jesus looks around. And he sees that, man, this meal that he's been invited to, everyone that's been invited or the who's who, the put together, the rich, the honorable. And what they were doing, it wasn't just that they were there. It's that they were they were shuffling and jostling for position. They were trying to get the seat in the highest spot because they wanted to be seen and be known. They wanted to find identity in the place that they were sitting You see, these men would have considered themselves clean, important, and really above most everyone else. You see, they were about their little kingdoms. They were about self-honor, self-glory, and self-focus. Which sounds pretty familiar to myself. A lot of times... Because everything runs through, man, what's it going to cost me and what's it going to gain for me? I can be about my own self. And so Jesus tells the story in Luke 14 that sets up what he talks about in Luke 15. He says, look, there's a host And the host represents God. He says this host is going to throw a banquet. He's throwing a party. And the party, this banquet, is represented as the kingdom of God. He says, man, the kingdom of God is going to be this huge party. This huge celebration. A feast. And so what he does is this host, God sends out invitations to people just like those that are at the party Jesus was at. The who's who of the Jewish community, the leaders, the clean. Those who would consider themselves clean. But all who were initially invited, what what you see in the story is they all make these excuses and they don't show up. They don't have time for it. They were too important. They thought themselves too clean to attend. And in light of their pride and self-focus, they miss out on the greatest banquet to ever been made. But while the unclean, because the host says, well now go get the lame, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the destitute, and bring them into the party. Those who were considered unclean. You see, what we see in the story is that in these parables is that both the king and the kingdom that he brings come in metrics and standards that we have no grid or place for. You see, in our kingdoms, we only want the best, the brightest, the most athletic, the most wealthy, the most popular. And and to go about it a different way, we would be a... We want... 
put it a different way, to bring in anyone that's not would be a threat to our position and our identity. I watch a show called The Crown on Netflix. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a phenomenal historical drama. Uh, they do a really good job with it. But on this season, spoiler alert, um, all these things are coming out about uh, the royal empire in the U.K. And one of the things that comes out is they had some cousins that um, were dealing with some disabilities. And they sent these two cousins... I believe were sisters in the story, to a mental facility and they just hid them away and they never knew about them. And the reason they did that and what you find out in the story is because if that would to be exposed, it would look, it would make the royal family look less. It would make them look imperfect. It would make them look weak. And man, there's this outrage within the family on the show but they can't believe that they would do that, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's what we do, but man, in life, we are constantly trying to round, surround ourselves with those that are a little more put together, the wealthy, the, the you know, the, the respectable. Like they, we, and and it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do that, but man, when our heart is because we want to promote self and our position and where we're at and we want to think ourselves to be better than so-and-so, there's a problem. <laughs> the other problem of this is that if we were honest, if we were to judge ourselves in light of the standards that we put on others, for friendship or relationship, we wouldn't even meet our own standards and yet we expect it from others. You see, sadly, we find our identities by who we have around us and how we can live either vicariously through them or how we can use them to elevate ourselves by what they can do. And so what that's turned into, I think you see that in church culture, but also, man, just the culture we live in is, man, people are so expendable. I get what I need from you and then I'm gone. So Jesus tells that story and then in Luke 15, beginning in verses 1 and 2, we get a continuation of this, the, the reality of this misunderstanding of God's kingdom simply by the two responses that you get in the first two verses. If you look at the first two verses, you get two parties. Party A are the tax collectors and sinners. And what it says, it says that they were drawing near to Jesus. Then you have party B, the religious leaders. It says that they grumbled. They were upset by Jesus. They, they judged Jesus. They, they criticized Jesus. They gossiped about Jesus. They were looking to destroy Jesus. They drew back from Jesus. Party A was considered the unclean, while party B was considered the clean. Where do you stand today? I think we can be quick to say party A, but how do you respond to the messiness of others or the messiness of your own self? You see, poor responses to the brokenness of others is more than likely rooted in a poor response to the brokenness of yourself. Usually the reason that we look down upon others is because we aren't ready to deal with the stuff that's going on in our own heart and our own messiness. And so I'm going to put that aside and cast it on someone else. We say it, uh, we think it, 
probably say it uh, all the time. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm a step ahead of that. You see, we are quick to pride. We are quick to look to others. And instead of saying, hey, man, I want to draw near because I have been, there is someone that has drawn near to me. I'm going to sit back and say, well, you get your act together. Then you can draw near. See, at times we forget our need then. We forget our need for the gospel then. But also, we forget our need for the gospel now. We become prideful in thinking, well, I've got this. The thing is, is you never move beyond the good news of Jesus. If anything, as a follower of Jesus, what happens is the more you understand God's holiness and His gloriousness and just how, uh, man, uh, you know, like great and holy He is, the more you understand your need for grace because you aren't. The cross, as we saw in Sonship that we went through with Men's Equip, the cross should only grow, right? As we realize our brokenness, the good news gets better. But man, so often we get some religious language and we move to Pharisee really quick, do we not? I get the lingo down and man, I can spout that lingo off and I'm going to tell you. Maybe not with my words, but definitely with my eyebrows, with my posture, with, man, I'm just going to ghost you. And, um, you know, uh, the reason I say that is because I know I was one. And at times, I are one, right? I was thinking back, oh man, when when Jesus, so my senior year of high school, Jesus really got a hold of my life. Uh, and I, about a year later, moved to Lubbock, and man, I was, I was a zealous Pharisee for the kingdom of God. <laughs> and uh, and so one of the things, I got connected with a group of guys, and every Thursday we would do three things. We would go to Paradigm, which was a weekly worship service at First Baptist Lubbock. And, man, we, would, we, were, we were on the front row, right? Like we had our hands raised all the time. You know, like, you know, we, we, were, we were ready. And we would celebrate and worship and proclaim our need for God's grace and, you know, repent of all the sins that we had committed that week, you know. And, and, and then we would get done and we would leave and we would go to a place called Josie's and we would eat a thing called a Big Mama, which is a 16-inch burrito covered in some type of gravy. And, uh, and we would eat that thing and then, man, it was time. And we would go to the depot district, which is the bar district in Lubbock. And we would go there. And man, we would, it was, it was judgment seat, right? Like we were walking up to people, not even being kind and like asking them, like it was just like, hey, you know, you know, we were using this, this form of evangelism where you would just kind of like get people to draw their own sin out. But our, our first thing would be like, hey, you know, it's not right to get drunk. And they would just look at us like, what are you talking about? We'd be like, come on, just say it. We know what you are, right? And it was the most fruitless thing ever, but we would leave and be like, well, we just casted our pearls before swine, you know, like, 
just so judgmental. And I look back, I was like, what was I like? I had no love in my heart at all. I was only going there because I knew some religious lingo and I was just going to share that in my pride. Around that time too, it was the first time I really felt called like, man, I think I'm going to plant a church one day. So people would ask me, where are you going to go? And I would say, I'm going where the sinners are, California. We're going to plant a church in San Diego. And I look back on that now, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, And I think it's really funny because we planted a church called Center Church. And nine times out of ten we tell people what that is, What? Well, guess what their response is? Center Church? I'm like, yes, yes, yes and yes, okay? But like that, that was my mentality. Because everyone I was around had the lingo. This was the Bible Belt. It was good. I'm not so sure anymore. But that's who I was, man. I think at times, like, if we're honest, that's who we are. And Jesus knows this, and so he shares these two parables. And the first one is about a lost sheep, and it begins with a question. He says, who among you? Now, this isn't a general question. Like, he's specifically talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He's saying, hey, guys, you who want to seek honor, you who, uh, man, don't understand why I would heal on the Sabbath, He says, who among you? He's moving everyone from the outward position of clean and unclean to the inward motivations of their heart. He's saying, hey, you need to wrestle. Jesus understands and presents something that we often look past and it's this. We are quick. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke to present the outside of the cup as clean. But cleansing the outside does no good when the heart is still a broken mess in need of grace. He says, you, Jesus would go on to say, man, Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. But when you open those things, it stinks. It's full of dead man's bones. While this is a rhetorical question, it has a very real answer. And so Jesus says, who among you having a hundred sheep? Which again, we can just read over that, right? Because in our minds, it's like, yeah, this is 2,000 years ago. Of course, everyone knew about sheep, Right? But that's, Jesus says this because this would have provoked the Pharisees. You see, a shepherd was really a despised uh, job. It was probably one of the most despised occupations uh, really during this time or in this culture. Shepherds were seen as unclean and they were hated by most, especially the Pharisees. They were looked down upon. Which is funny because, man... (laughs) David is what? David's a shepherd. And so they look to David and say, no, that's a man after God's own heart, and yet he would be considered unclean. You see, in this parable, Jesus' question to those considered to be clean, he's saying, look, I'm going to place you in the story as one who's unclean. He's putting them in the shoes of an unclean shepherd as a way to point out their uncleanliness. He's saying, you're just like them. What he's saying with this question is, hey, you who are unclean but think yourselves to be clean need to really think about where your righteousness comes from. And so he presents them as shepherds. He says, look, even if you had a hundred sheep, would you not, if one was lost, leave the ninety-nine who were found and go look for the lost one until you found it? 
Now, in this time period, to have a hundred sheep was no small thing. That shepherd was probably pretty well off. And so losing one at the end of the day would hurt, but probably he could have dealt with it. But what Jesus is presenting here is the love and care of the Father for his people. Jesus is saying to those listening and being made to wrestle with what is clean and unclean to show them that they are the lost sheep in the same way that those they view as unclean are. And yet God, in His love, care, and grace, leaves the 99. And He doesn't just like, He leaves them willingly. And He doesn't just leave them willingly, like He doesn't leave them begrudgingly. And guess what? He's not angry to leave the 99. To go after the one. He's not like, oh my gosh. I have to go get Eric. Ah. Right? Like, he, that's not what he says. Like, he says, like, and we're going to see in a minute, it says he searches diligently. He's like, no, I'm going to get Eric. Like, that's what he's after. Today, do you believe that? Man, I think so often our view of God is that we view God as when He looks at us and says, look, I'm going to go after you, but I'm really not too happy about it. That's not His heart. That is not His heart. You see, the picture of leaving presents to us the intent, focus, and bent of God in bringing salvation to those whom He loves. The story of redemption is not plan B, God's plan of rescue through the giving of His Son who is, guess what, Jesus is the good shepherd who is going to bring all of His sheep into the sheepfold, began in the garden and was fulfilled upon the cross of Calvary. For He willingly left the comforts of heaven for the one. He's the good shepherd that does not sit back and tell the lost sheep, hey, good luck. You're probably going to die. But hopefully you can get it together. No, he sets out and rescues his sheep. Look what it says. It says that he, he goes out to find the sheep. He says, when the sheep is found, he does not chide the sheep. He does not gripe at the sheep for being a lost sheep. Do we have the same response to others? I think oftentimes our response is, how dare you make me love you enough to walk with you and search for you? Get your act together. Maybe we tell that to ourselves, right? Oh man, today, like I struggle again today. Like Kyle, when are you going to get your act together? Instead of saying, man, God, crying out, God, I need your grace. No, what he does, he says that he puts the sheep on his shoulders and carries it back. He carries it to the party, to the banquet. He doesn't see the sheep and say, okay, let's go. Hopefully you can keep up this time. No, it begins with grace that he finds you. It ends with grace that you are found and will forever be in His presence. And the whole way it continues with grace. And upon bringing the sheep back, which the reality is, is what He did, is He brought that sheep to life, like it would have died. 
what we need to realize is we were in a far worse position. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not only that, but like, it's not like we were lost sheep that just kind of wandered off. Like we were, like we're running against it. And like when we see the shepherd, we're trying to we're trying to headbutt the shepherd, right? Like we want nothing to do with it. And yet he comes and in love and in grace gives us life. And what he says is when he gets back that there is rejoicing and much joy. He says there's more joy in heaven for a sinner who repents and proclaims their need for grace and rescue than over the 99 who think themselves to be clean and righteous but are not. He's saying, look, you can sit here and throw all the parties you want. You can sit in the greatest places of honor. You can look like you have it all together and think you don't need anything else. And there's no rejoicing in that. There's only wrath. For the sinner that says, no, man, I'm poor and needy. And he rescues and there's joy. The problem in church culture and in culture at large is the same as large is the same as it's always been. We don't seem to think we really need to be rescued because we don't think we're really that broken, lost, unclean, and dead, do we not? I was going to give an example of that. It would be like if we were all on a, if you're on a cruise ship and the cruise ship goes down and everyone's in the water and a rescue ship comes and throwing out life preservers and it gets to you and you're like, no, I don't need it. I'm not drowning. And your head comes up out of the water again and you choke on. They're like, no, you are drowning. You're like, no, I'm good. Don't need it. I don't, I, your head goes underwater again and you're, no, I'm not. No, like you're going to drown. So we do it that way. Like, I, I don't need it. Like, I don't need Jesus. I just need my kingdom. My kingdom's always changing. It's always about me, but it's going to look a little different based on what my needs are. On the other side of that, you're sitting in the water and they throw the preserver to you and just say, no, I don't need it. I can swim. I can get there. I'm a strong swimmer. Like, no, like you're out in the middle of the ocean, like... Land is a long way off. You're not going to make it. No, I got it. I'm strong enough. Or you reject it by saying, oh, just give it to someone else who needs it. I'm better than most. You're not. I'm not. This is what Jesus is relating in this story. We find the same story in parable number two where a woman is said to have ten coins and loses one. Now, this ten coins, really, one of these coins would be about a day's labor. Actually, for a woman in this time period, it might only be half a day. So that's, a, like, that's 20 days worth of labor right there. And so to lose a coin was a big deal. But still, at the end of the day, even if she wouldn't have found the one coin, she still had nine, right? She's not going to be destitute if she lost the one. But in the story, she says she lights a lamp and she jumps into some serious spring cleaning to find this coin that has been lost. She is determined to find the coin. Love that Jesus uses the phrase sought diligently. You see, that's good news for all who come to know God's grace. For God did not sit back and wait for you to find Him. Rather, He sought you out diligently. I love the story of C.S. Lewis, who really spent most of his life as an atheist, like he fought in World War One, and agnostic atheist, didn't believe, like, if I can see that suffering, like, why would there be a God that's good, you know? 
And so he wrestled with this. And, uh, you know, he had some friends that, that weren't atheists. J- uh, Tolkien was one of them. And they would sit down and they would have all these discussions and talks. And, man, he describes, uh, if you read, uh, man, in his books, his biography, uh, being pursued uh, by God's grace. And, and the way that he phrases it was that he was being chased down by the hounds of heaven. He says, through this process, and the way he describes it, he's like, man, when I would lay my head down or I'd close my eye, he was like, I knew they were coming for me, right? The hounds of heaven of God's grace. And man, at the end of the day, he describes himself as the most reluctant convert ever. Because he said one day he got in a sidecar with his brother, I believe, to go to the zoo. He said, when I got in the sidecar, I didn't believe. When I got out, I believed. So that was it, right? But through the whole process, what he, he can look back and say, yeah, I can see God's grace just pursuing me, seeking me out diligently. You see, we often don't realize, we often think, either because we are running away from it, or we believe we have to do something to get to it, instead of resting and rejoicing that He searches us out diligently to rescue And guess what? The truth is, is that he will find that which he searches for. For none whom the Father draws will be lost. Not a single one. Look at the result again. It's joy for the repenting sinner, not over the self-righteous. God rejoices over the unclean made clean, not he who thinks he is clean, but is blinded by their own stench of death. And so today, how do we respond to this parable? Well, I think there's a few responses. First, we need to wrestle with cleanliness. How do you view yourself and your need for God's grace? You find yourself today saying, well, I don't really need it. I'm not bad. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't really need it because I'm not really drowning. I don't really need it because I can accomplish it. I don't really need it, you know, and whatever it is. But not only that, as you wrestle with cleanliness, if you're a follower of Jesus today, how do you view others in comparison to yourself and your own need for grace? And if we understood our daily need for grace, we would be a lot more gracious and patient and empathetic towards others. Does that mean we just allow sin or whatever to have? No, we speak truth in love. Love. Love that's rooted in an understanding of our grace and God's grace and our need. So we need to wrestle with cleanliness. Secondly, we need to rejoice in the gospel and we need to cry out for grace. Man, when's the last time you rejoiced in your salvation? Or is it just kind of a dusty thing that you've put off in the closet or on the shelf, you know? You know, it's kind of just there under a lump of dirty clothes and you're just kind of going through the motions. And when's the last time you really just sat down and just thought about how broken you were, how broken you still are, and yet God's immense love and His diligent searching and in and coming and putting you on it. Like, when's the last time you just spent 30 minutes reflecting on that and just sat in awe of His grace? It should be a continual rejoicing. The good news never gets old. And today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I would encourage you to cry out for rescue so that you might be a part of the rejoicing. 
And then lastly, the third response is this, because I, again, I said it at the beginning, God doesn't just invite us into the kingdom. He doesn't just bring us in. He calls us to participate in the kingdom. Not in our own strength, but by His power and glory. We are to go and proclaim the kingdom to the lost. We are called now to go and proclaim to others. We all know lost coins. Are we willing to leave our comforts? Are we willing to leave the security? Are we willing to leave our privacy fences and our closed garage doors and our ring alarm systems and all those things and, you know, uh, uh, whatever it is to, to get out there and say, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to uh, develop relationships and I'm going to proclaim the good news to others. Who are those people? Are you searching others out? Are you waiting on them to clean themselves up? May we be a people that pray for the lost. And may we be a people that intentionally share and intentionally serve. That we look for opportunities. That our prayer would be, God, show me where they need to see the good news in this moment. See, how we view the kingdom and the gospel is expressed and how we first view our place in the kingdom, that we were unclean and yet made clean, and next, and how we live out our call to express the good news of the kingdom to others. As followers of Jesus, we are to invite others into the banquet, but the problem is we are often only looking to those who are like us, who are put together, who will make us look better, who will cost us the least and give us the most gain. Jesus chose fishermen and tax collectors. They couldn't give him a thing. They couldn't even catch fish well. Like every experience that you see with Jesus and the disciples when they're fishing, he's the one that brings in the catch, right? Like they labor all night. We're the same. And yet he says, nope, you're mine. We need a more full picture of the depth of our sin, the breadth of God's grace that's found only in the gospel, the rejoicing that repentance brings and the good work before us that draws us to proclaim liberty to all who are captive and broken. For we were once captive and broken. May that be who we are. May that be what we're known for. A grace-filled people rejoicing in who God is and proclaiming in word and in deed there's freedom, and the only freedom is found in Jesus. Some of the team come back up, and man, we, uh, uh, man, I want you to to wrestle with, man, just asking the Spirit to to reveal things in your heart about the way you maybe perceive yourself as uh, cleaner or, uh, you know, uncleaner or whatever. Like, because uh, it can go both sides, right? Like, you can be saved by the good news of Jesus and only ever believe yourself to be uh, less than what Jesus has called you to be. Or you can you can go to the other side of that and have a whole lot of ego. And, uh, you know, and, and so you wrestle with that, but also with them. And even just crying out, God, who are those people around me? And if, if you can't think of anyone, if you don't know, like, I think you said, God, give me a heart to go out, get out of my comfort zone, and get to know some people. Um, but along with this, we're going to share in communion. I invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to, to share in the partaking of communion, which is this reality of Jesus giving all of Himself so that He might rescue us, 
so that we might be found and have hope and life in Him. And so I invite you to come and share in communion. And we're, uh, we're going to sing another song. We're going to sing, we've been singing about, man, God's love and His, His grace in rescuing us. And man, this last song is talking about just how, man, that when we think about that, oftentimes we're like, God, why would you do that? And yet you do that. And that's good news for us today. So let's reflect, share in communion, and sing.